Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. That was breathtaking to worship the Lord with you through music. And thank you to all the musicians and the vocalists. Thank you so much for leading us to worship the Lord this way. Hopefully you retained your place in the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. Evidence demands a verdict. And there is incredible evidence in the Holy Scriptures regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. A gospel that does not include the resurrection of Jesus is not a gospel at all. It's simply a description of a mighty prophet who was a man who went about doing good, but when he died, it was over. But we know the gospel is described in this way. It was already prayed just a moment ago. The gospel is this. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And He was buried. And He was raised again according to the Scripture. There are many good books that you could buy and read and gain from regarding a defense of the resurrection of Christ. For if the resurrection of Christ could be exposed as a figment of our imaginations or a hoax of some sort, then the whole gospel message would fall down under the weight of that criticism and revelation. However, many books have been written by different kinds of people from different fields of endeavor. The first book that I was ever introduced to in this regard was a book written by a man named Mr. Morrison. He was a lawyer, and he set out to prove, using his considerable skills as a lawyer, that the gospel message of the resurrection is not true. The result was that he was converted to Jesus Christ. Now take note. If you want to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, you're treading on very, very difficult territory and you might get saved like Mr. Morrison. Another journalist, this man a journalist, more contemporary to us, a journalist in Chicago, his wife started attending a church and lo and behold, the unmentionable occurred in her life as far as he was concerned. He was concerned about it, and the thing that he feared came upon him. She came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior and embraced Him as the living Lord. So, not unlike Morrison, he met on his own quest for evidence that would cause people not to believe in the resurrection of Christ. His name is Lee Strobel. And Mr. Strobel writes about his story in the book called The Case for Christ. He has several books, all of which inevitably go back to the resurrection in his own personal testimony. He got saved from his sins, embraced the living Christ, 
and has been quite the apologist for Christianity ever since. The last person I will mention from another field of endeavor is a man by the name of J. Warner Wallace. Mr. Wallace is a forensic expert. And he wrote a book on this that you will find interesting if you're somewhat skeptical or wanting to help people who are skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's called Cold Case Christianity. For all these books about the resurrection, I've only skimmed the surface of these books, there's no book like the Bible. Because the Bible says, in effect, that if you and I can muster any number of good arguments out of our heads and out of reason for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's not going to help anybody come to faith in the ultimate sense in Christ. Because the Bible says that if you are a follower of Jesus, it's true of every woman, man, and child here today. If we know Jesus, it was because we have been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. The Scriptures bear witness, both Old Testament as we call them, and New Testament, to the person and work of Christ with its crowning achievement being that He was raised from the dead on the third day. With that having been said, let's turn our attention, beginning with verse 31, to the Scripture. See what the witness of the Scriptures are to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 31 begins a section which I'm simply describing as the verification of Christ's death by the order of Pilate. Now Pilate keeps popping up, doesn't he? In this whole drama, we see him again in verse 31. The Jews, therefore, let's pause, and for those of you who may not know what this refers to, it's not to the whole nation of Israel. It is simply a description of the people who were at the top of the food chain, as it were, religiously. They were the men, the 71, who formed this group of people. The Sanhedrin, they are called. They were the governing influences of everyday life in Israel as it pertained to the law of Moses, their own law and associated treatments of that law. So this is not blanket condemnation of those men who in effect thought they sealed the fate once and for all of Jesus by voting on Him as being a blasphemer, someone who called Himself God. And by the way, they were right in their assessment of what Jesus thought of Himself. He is God. But they were wrong in that He was a blasphemer because God does not blaspheme when He calls Himself God, right? We don't have time to go into all the possibilities in the book of John about Christ being God. So look back at verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, that would be the last day before the most important of all the festivals of Judaism, the Passover, where there would be a commemoration of the last plague that God used, the one that finally pried Israel loose from over 400 years of enslavement when God sent the death angel. And the death angel 
as that angel would come over all of Egypt if a house did not have the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the lintel and doorpost, then those present in the house would have their firstborn die as a result. And this was something to commemorate the great liberation of the Jewish people from awful bondage and symbolizes in effect for us, because we know what John the Baptist called Jesus. Remember what he called him when he saw him? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was speaking precisely about Jesus as being the Passover Lamb. And so when we think about that, we have to understand that these leaders, they were religious leaders. They were the teachers and the priests of the nation of Israel. And little did they know that they were playing right into the hands of a sovereign, providential God. This was all part of God's plan of salvation. It was a day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. Asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Where would they have been taken away? We know from study of history and society in Jerusalem at this time, when people were crucified, then after they expired, their bodies would be taken to a mass open grave and they would be buried as paupers, as it were. Verse 32 says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the second man who was crucified with Jesus. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. So here's the evidence. The evidence is physical evidence. Medical people explain how this could be. And when one of the four soldiers who formed the detachment who brought Christ to the cross and nailed the nails into His hand, hands and feet. One of them was given the assignment by the centurion who was the commander of that process to take the spear. And it undoubtedly had been done before. They had broken the legs of people. They had broken them to help them. It was really an act of mercy because... Sometimes men would stay on a cross for upwards of three or more days and would struggle for life. It shows how strong the desire and the will of man is to live. But remember, these Jewish leaders knew that if these three men remained on the cross after sundown this particular day, then it would defile Jerusalem. So they pled and got their way. But when they came to Jesus... The, the sword was thrust up into his side and out came a mixture of blood and water. Physicians, medical people tell us that this is an indication of one's having died. So Christ died. And Pilate was part of helping that truth to surface. But look at verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately there came out blood and water. And he was, has seen, has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. 
To whom is the writer of the Gospel John referring? He's referring to the man whom we have been introduced to recently in our study of the Gospel of John as a man whom Jesus loved, one of His apostles. And it's he who is writing this. It was John the Apostle. It's agreed. And he has seen, he's reporting, he's an eyewitness. And he's seen what happened at this point when the spear was thrust up into the side of Jesus and this mixture of blood and water came out as an indication that Jesus had actually died. And he has borne witness. Here again, this word suggests this is not the first time he's borne the witness. This is the written account of it. But he could not help but tell what his eyes had seen in terms of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he's doing that for us even today. And his witness is true. He knows that he's telling the truth. So also that you may do what? Believe. This is for us. If you're here and you've never really entrusted your life to Christ, this is a personal message for you. You're that important to the Lord. Look at verses 36 and 37. For these things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. If we were to turn to Exodus chapter 12, verse 16, we would see how in giving orders of how to perform this great time of preparation for the observance of the Passover. The Scripture says, not one bone of the sacrificial lamb, one that would be blemishless and only a year old, not one bone was to be broken. This was fulfilled in Jesus. Remember the Lamb of God. He is the ultimate Passover lamb. It was His blood that has covered us. That's simply to say His work on the cross according to the Scriptures. Exodus chapter 12, verse 16. And also, He goes on to say in verse 37, and again, another Scripture says, they shall look on Him whom they pierced. We saw last week from the book of Psalms, we saw a prophecy about the crucifixion. And we learn that there was no such crucifixion in play when David wrote that psalm 1000 B.C. In fact, there was no mention of any cross until sometime between 400 and 300 B.C. The Carthaginians were the one who introduced that form of execution. And then it was picked up by the Persians about 100 years after they established it. And then the Romans adopted it. So... We see this prophecy is from Zechariah the prophet, chapter 12, verse 10. The Scriptures bear witness to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Now let's look at another section, beginning with verse 38. This speaks of the preparation of Christ's body. Look at verse 38. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea... And by the way, if we turn to Luke chapter 23, beginning with 50, we hear the writer say these words. Luke says, He was a good and righteous man. He was also a wealthy man. And this causes us to think about Isaiah 53, which itself was written 700 years before Christ. And if you read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it's like reading an autobiography of Jesus. It tells us about His passion. And it tells us about 
He was buried among the rich. Was Jesus Christ materially wealthy? Hardly. The Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians that in His time in heaven before He became one of us, He was ultimately rich. But He who was rich became poor on our behalf in order that we might become rich in Christ. What kind of riches do we have? We have forgiveness that will never be taken back. We have eternal life. And when the Bible speaks of eternal life, remember when Jesus describes eternal life, He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. When He was questioned by Philip, one of His apostles, and Philip said, Master, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And what did He say in response? Philip, have I been so long with you and you still do not know who I am? If you've seen me, Philip, You've seen the Father. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. Fully God, fully man, given on our behalf so that we could know God and have eternal life. Unbelievable. This verse 38 speaks of Joseph as being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Is it possible that there's someone here today who has given his or her life to Christ, but you're afraid to come out and say so because of fear of what people will think or say about you? We must not fear. The Lord came to cast out fear. He's with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. If all others abandon you and me, Jesus will not. And He, he asked... Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came therefore and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also. We've met Nicodemus, haven't we? In the Gospel of John. It's been a long time ago. Chapter 3. And he came to Jesus at night. He was a teacher. And he comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel. He held a high place of importance in teaching the law, the Torah, and associated works. And he comes and Jesus has Nicodemus inquire of him, uh, I want to know about you. And Jesus says, he knew what was on his mind. And he said, unless you are born from above, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And he said, Nicodemus, are you telling me I need to be born a second time? Yes, I am. He said, how can an old man like me get back up in his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus was clarifying all that for him. And that stuck with him. We don't know exactly what the moment of Nicodemus' conversion was. It could have been this very experience as he teamed up with his cohort from the Sanhedrin, Joseph Arimathea. Look what he brought. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Do you know what that would be worth in his day? 30,000 denarii. One denarii was the going wage for any common laborer. 30,000 days of work. We were introduced to another use of this compound 
in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the nearby village of Bethany just before Holy Week began. They were there. And what does Mary do? She brings out a jar, a vial of perfume, which weighed one pound. And that one pound was 300 denarii, a whole year's wage for a common laborer. And the Scripture says the fragrance was so sweet and so powerful that every room in the house, we don't know how many rooms there were, but the whole house was permeated with this beautiful fragrance. Think about this. Jesus is the King, not just of the Jews, but He is the King of the universe. He had a burial fit for a king. His very burial verifies who He was in the preparation of it. Look at verse 40. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices. These strips of linen would be about this wide and they would be doused in this mixture that is mentioned here and they would form a pasty substance and the body would be completely wrapped. But there was something that would occur before that happened. Look at the last part of verse 7. As is the burial custom of the Jews. These men were steeped in customs. They knew their traditions. These men undoubtedly, Joseph and Nicodemus, had undoubtedly done what they were doing for Jesus on many occasions before. And this is what, according to their rules, and they were sticklers for the rules, that they would have done. They would have washed the body of Jesus. Oh my goodness. Those wounds on His head, on His face, His torso, His feet, all of His body cleaned, cleaned. They were careful. Don't you imagine? Careful. And then they would comb His hair, which was matted with blood undoubtedly from the thorn of crowns. And then finally, to show you the precision with which these men did what they did. According to the customs we learned, they cleaned His fingernails and His toenails to prepare Him for burial. They spared no effort. They were against a time limit, but they worked and they got Him ready. Verse 41 says, Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had just been laid. This was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, isn't it? And it's a tomb that has never been used. That fits for Jesus, doesn't it? Fit for a king. And this garden was within walking distance of Golgotha, the place of the skull where Christ was crucified. Don't you see the providential hand of God in all of this? In Pilate's decision and his decision being overridden by the Sanhedrin and all the conspiring of the people who were really seemingly under the direction of the devil, behind the scenes, God's plan was being worked out. The devil, as he is described by Martin Luther, the great reformer, Luther said this, he said, uh, Satan is the Lord's devil. He can't do anything 
without getting permission from God. Therefore, the scripture goes on to say in verse 42, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because a tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So we've looked at the verification of his death by Pilate in the order to break the legs of all three and his were not needing to be broken because he was dead. And now these men, they do close work. You know, if they had sensed any life in that corpse, they would not have continued. They would have solicited whatever help medically they could give to revive the Lord. Here's the last thing, the visitation of his friends. There are three friends who are mentioned here. One is a woman, Mary Magdalene, and two are men, Peter and the Apostle John. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. Remember, she was one of only five people who were at the cross of Jesus, and only one man was there, John, the one whom he loved. Only one man, four women were there, including Mary, could not sleep that night. She knew three days were coming up with the coming of the new day. And she jumped up and made her way there, still dark. And the Scripture says she saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. A group of engineers at Georgia Tech University several years ago took the probable dimensions of the stone, and this is what they discovered. It was probably somewhere between one and a half and two tons. Now, I don't know that she was a person who was uh, a weightlifter, <laughs> but no woman could do that. It'd take a lot of men to make that stone move out of its groove. And so she ran, verse 2 says, casting all kinds of concern about what she would be thought of by running. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we <clears throat> do not know where they have laid Him. They have taken, they've taken His body, stolen His body. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. John, some have said, was undoubtedly younger than Peter because he beat him there. Well, that doesn't necessarily hold water. We do know at least John was in better shape than Peter. <laughs> Verse 5 says, And stooping and looking in, this is John, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. He began to have it to dawn on him that something that Jesus had predicted had happened. 6 says, Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head and lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. This would have been evidence and it should be to us too. Because when a person was wrapped as Jesus was wrapped with these strips of linen that were 
saturated with this mixture of the elements that were fragrant, but also formed a pasty substance to seal in the body. That would be something, when they looked in, they didn't see this thing unraveled. Rather, they saw it intact, indicating that Jesus had come up right through that burial garment. And the fact that his face cloth was neatly folded and all the other things, it was something that surely told them what had happened. So the other disciple in verse 8, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and he believed. He saw and he believed. He's the first believer in the church of Jesus Christ. He saw and he believed. Verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. He, they didn't understand the passages in the Old Testament. We read from Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Talk about this in Psalm 16. About the Messiah would come back from the dead. They didn't get it when they read it. Just like we read parts of the Bible, we don't get it. So the disciples went away again to their own home. So what do we see here? Mary of Magdalene comes before dawn. She sees that the temple, excuse me, the stone had been rolled away. She makes a beeline for Peter and John. She tells them what's happened. They all three go together. And Mary is there too. But she doesn't leave. There was great belief in John, at least, and perhaps in Peter too. They believed. But she was still grieving. She is depicted as grieving in verse 1. She wept. And look at what verse 11 says. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. This woman knew the Bible. I'm sure she knew Psalm 34. In verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. She was brokenhearted at the loss of her Lord and her teacher. And these angels said to her, according to verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. This is the proper relationship you and I are to have to Jesus. We should know Him as Lord. We should not presume upon Him in any way. We should understand that He is the Master of our lives. And what a wonderful Master. What Master would lay down His life for those who were His enemies? This is exactly what Jesus has done. What Master would to this moment live to make intercession for us to make sure that when Satan accuses us to God the Father for sin, when we sin... All Jesus has to do is raise one of His hands and there the Father will see the mark and remember the agreement that He and Jesus made that if Christ would go to the sin and be the place for the punishment of our sin in Him, 
who knew no sin so that we who are sinners could be saved and the slate wiped clean. That's the kind of Savior we have. But He is our Lord. We must never forget that. That's the way we are to address Him. Verse 14 says, When she had said this, she turned around and behold, Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. One wonders how in the world that could be. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus didn't take himself away. She was so grief-stricken, she didn't recognize Jesus. And look at 16. This is phenomenal. Jesus said to her, Mary, that's all it took. She turned and said to him, in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. He was her teacher. In the book of John 13, about verse 10, the Bible talks about Jesus speaking to His men right before He got arrested in the upper room. And this is what He says about Himself. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I'm your teacher and Lord. Mary had heard that too, even though she was not in that room that night when Jesus made that comment. Jesus said to her in verse 17, Stop clinging to me. The King James Version does violence to this text. It says, Don't touch me. That's not what Jesus said. He says in this translation I'm sharing with you is totally accurate. Stop clinging to me. He was, she was hugging Jesus. And it was not because there was anything wrong, sinful, dirty about that at all. But there was something Christ had in mind for her, just like He does for you and me. Look at what He says, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. This is beautiful. Go to my brothers. All the men who had abandoned Jesus at His most difficult moment of being crucified. All of them. He says, Go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and whose Father? Your Father. And to my God and your God. What affirmation our Lord Jesus gives. He is the ultimate affirmer to us as His brothers, as it were, or sisters, and as fellow sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples this was her mission. Do you know when Christ saves you from your sins, it's for His glory? And do you know that Jesus says in John 15, by this is My Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. We glorify God by depending on Jesus. And when we depend on Jesus, just like a branch in a vine depends on that, that, that vine for the nutrients and the water so that branch can bear fruit, we are to be in that kind of relationship. And when we do that, Christ produces fruit to us. That's our mission. Your life is significant. You may think it's, your life is just nothing. If you know Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. 
God saved you for a purpose and that was to fulfill the mission that He gave you to have. In this chapter, there is grief and then relief because there is belief. Are you suffering in your heart today? Well, Jesus Christ knows that and He loves you. And He died for you to give you eternal life. Would you bow your head? Lord, we thank You that You tell us, but as many as received You, to them You gave eternal life. Who were born not of human means, but born from above. Born again by the Holy Spirit of God. And Holy Spirit, we ask You to take these words and emblazon them on our heart and our minds. And we pray for people who are here today, do not know You, that they would not let this day pass without coming to You and humbling themselves before You and trusting You alone for their salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.